The reason why I decided to work with cyanotypes is because it literally is the language of blueprint. It is the the way in which your country gets carved up. It's the way in which divisions get implemented and supported when there are none um, through the sort of colonial machine and through other systems of oppression. So I wanted that to be a tool to be reinscribed with different meaning. Hello and welcome to Biennial Bites, everyone, the official podcast of Sharjah Biennial 15. My name is Horal Kasimi. I'm the director of Sharjah Art Foundation and curator of Sharjah Biennial 15, Thinking Historically in the Present. In this podcast, I'm going to be asking artists about their practice, their process, and how their project speaks to our current moment. Over the next half an hour, we're going to be finding out what makes their work important and why it's relevant to us. Today we have with us New York-based artist Kambui Olujimi. What happens to a black body when it's freed from gravity, when it stops being weighed down by the forces of oppression? Can the result be black rhapsody? These are some of the questions that drive Kambui's practice. His cross-disciplinary art evolves through long-term projects that manifest as sculpture, installation, photography, writing, video, and performance. Hi, Kambui. Welcome to Sharjah Biennial Podcast. Hey, how you doing? It's nice for having me out. Thank you. We met at the Armory in New York about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really struck by the, the watercolors that were exhibited that referenced the Black Lives Matter movement and the pandemic. So I insisted on a studio visit. At this point, I was looking to invite artists with existing work or work in process or in progress. Uh, But I was very moved by the large floating figures in your paintings um, that I saw. So you've seen and experienced a lot in Sharjah. Could you tell us some of the more interesting, memorable moments you've had since you've been here on both visits? Yeah, it's been great. I'm I'm glad I had a chance to spend some time here. I got addicted to Karak, which I did (laughs) not know about. And um, for all y'all who don't know, it's this this, uh, yummy rocket fuel of a of a tea it's like the size the cups like the size of the palm of your hand and um you don't even get out of the car you just roll up to the cafeteria and then put up your hand like you like you calling numbers like oh i need i need five i need seven i need six and they just bring them out to you you know we usually get like one or two and so amal from the team was like oh have you ever had this and I was like, no, nah. I mean, I've had like, you know, chai teas, but it's not the same. It's not the same. So then it went from this is good to so everybody makes a different one. <laughs> you know, we got to do a kind of taste testing while I'm here. So now I came back with like a whole map of places to go. So would you be able to recommend your favorite spots? The go-to places. Oh, the rating. There's a rating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we had a top three. We let the others fall into forget forgetfulness. But um, I don't know where they are. <laughs> I just know there's the spot that's far, and then there's the spot that's medium, and then there's the one on the other side of the country. Those were the top three. We'll make sure to have them on our visitor's guide. Definitely. <laughs> And and another experience was uh, in Khorfakan, actually. Yeah. So we went out there to do some research on these traditional boats, these fishing boats and 
first it was like, you know, they don't make them anymore. And then it was, oh, there's a dude who makes them still. And he's an older fisherman. And we go out there. He speaks a dialect that Amal doesn't even understand, really. And he's he's speaking so that she can understand him. But she still is getting like a third of what he's saying. And I have zero Arabic. So I'm just useless. And I'm just using like pictures and hand gestures to find out how you build this boat and what it's made from. And, and then he says, you want to go out on the boat? And I just looked at him with a smile just sliding across my face. Now, mind you, I can't swim. Like I swim like a stone. And I didn't even miss a beat. I was like, yep, let's go. And Amal was like, not on my watch. <laughs> You're not going to drown out there. Because he had already mentioned that, you know, the boat will flip over every so often. It'll <laughs> flip over like once or twice. But you'll be fine, you know. And, you, you know, the sharks are not even always there. They're just, you'll be fine. Like, it's all right. And I'm like, not dressed to go in the water. Not dressed, to, can't swim. And we're trying to have this, I'm trying to speak to him in English to let me go. She's trying to talk to him in his dialect to be like, this not even happening. And I got a plane to catch him like six hours. You mentioned that um, not many people make these boats, but when we did the talk at MoMA, one of the young uh, girls from Khorfa Khan who's studying in New York at uh, NYU was actually in the audience and, and came up to us and mentioned that she actually makes these boats. So that was really interesting that a new generation are actually interested in, in following through. And I think you met her there. Yeah, I should. I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, I want to keep up because I wanted to do something with the boats for this for this project. But I think it was, you know, it was it's going to be something for the next project because they're traditional boats made from palm trees, palm ferns. Yeah, but they are super futuristic to me. And it's going to come back around. I just know it. it's going to come back around. Within your practice, you've mentioned that concept defines your process. And concept for you is also intimately tied in with space. Could you talk us through how you evolve your work when, as you say, concept comes before process? Yeah. So a lot of what I end up doing, hopefully, is listening. So I have these ideas, these like sparks, these jump offs, and they kick off like an avalanche. And then you ride that avalanche down and you either turn it into a laser or you got it into a teacup. And so more practically, what that looks like is, you know, you have this big anything can happen kind of idea. But then there's a process of distilling and you want all of the elements to come down into a really single breath. And so thankfully, I was able to do a site visit. So last November when I came out, I spent a week and the foundation took me everywhere. We went across the country, literally. And even at the end of that trip, I didn't have, uh, I'm going to do this. I didn't have a course of action. So I've been really thankful for the support in this process, you know, being able to say, okay, I'm going to sit with it. And I think it was a couple months before we talked again. So then I had an idea about the role of the trickster figure and shape-shifting and how the colonial imaginary subjugates for gain that's you know created whether it's manifest destiny whether it's gold in a bang there's this imagined location and lifestyle that justifies oppression and along with that sort of imagination 
or a projection. There's an expectation that the black body, the brown body, the subjugated body should perform in a certain way. And so to confuse that or to be illegible means that you either don't exist or then you are a threat and you are handled. So those people who glitch, who create a a way of being or offer a way of being that shakes off legibility, confuses it, camouflages, morphs, all of those things have, those, those figures have always been intriguing to me. And so the piece that I'm doing at the Flying Saucer highlights eight people that I feel like operate or figures that I feel like operate in the space of trickster or shapeshifter. Thank you for talking to us about your experiences at Sharjah and your practice, Kambui. Let's hear about your Sharjah Biennial project after the break. Well, your recent body of work, North Star, looks at blackness within Western and contemporary art. You've spoken eloquently about the idea of black rhapsody, black bodies floating in a state of euphoria, escaping, however momentarily, the gravity of oppression. Could you tell us more about how this concept has begun to manifest in your work? Yeah, with, um, I think, maybe two years before I started doing North Star, this idea of rhapsody and black rhapsody kind of started with (laughs) with the Oscars when La La Land was announced as a winner and Moonlight wasn't, there was this like great disappointment. And I feel like it wasn't just in my house. And then when that error was corrected, that moment was muted or stepped on. And that's not unusual. That was an accident. But there's a, a number, I started to look at how, especially in Black American culture, you use refraction to hide your joy. You don't say exactly what it is that you feel. You ricochet it. You don't tell, you keep your money in your sock. You don't let people know it. There's all these things that you do because there's this phantom that any second day could take it all away. And so I started to think about Rhapsody and a refraction of Rhapsody and this place that I've been trying actively to never define this kind of Black Rhapsody as a space that moves in and out of um, out of joy, out of poetry. And that led me to think that it exists and there's a place for it in a, a lot of contemporary culture, but it's seen as a fleeting moment and it's that as a counterpoint against the expectation. So North Star is about offering a new context and saying that this freedom, this openness, boundlessness. Boundlessness can be a context for existence. And not only that, that it is innate. What we do to step on it goes against the, like, what, how we're born. For the 15th Sharjah Biennial, Kambui worked with a range of media from watercolors and prints to sculptures and murals. His installations reference colonial printing processes, masks from the Congo, and mazes with many routes to propose the ways in which bodies might defy gravity and take flight. Well, we know you've seen and experienced a lot in Sharjah, from West Coast to East Coast and in between. What were some of your impressions during that visit? You seem to have been taken in by the Flying Saucer, one of the city's architectural landmarks. Yeah, I mean, there was so many things. I think that's a different, a whole different podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> there's um, some of the high, the geology museum, the Heist Geological Park. 
That was amazing. I loved the architecture on it. So you go there, you go there, and it's talking about where it's located. You know, it could have been in the city center, and it would have been a very different museum. But to walk out of the museum and be at a geological site is amazing. And so it's it's that kind of thought that really struck me. And also, Al-Madam, the buried city, was pretty amazing. And I think that really informed a thinking of time and thinking of nature and outside of the scheming of humans. And so that played, that's probably the most direct influence that you can see in the work that I'm making for SP15. And the flying saucer? Oh, then the building itself, I was really struck by the architecture of the flying saucer. Um, and also when it gets built, it gets built right after independence. Is that correct? Yeah, in the 70s. Yeah, And so it gets built in the 70s and in the early 70s. And you have this like look to the heavens as not otherworldly, as something that is humanly attainable. It's a, a brutalist building that I, I really love when brutalism is light and like nimble. And so when I saw it, I was immediately I wanted that space to to dance in. And it's very much a site-specific work. So that's also really exciting for us to have the flying saucer used in the way that you're using it. When we last spoke about your plans for the biennial, you mentioned working on large-scale cyanotypes. Could you tell us a bit more about those cyanotypes? (laughs) Yeah, those things, man. Those cyanotypes. So this project is... Like a lot of the projects that I make, and I've been really thinking about this in terms of like how I make and why I make, and that's another podcast, but what is one's capacity? I want things to be an undertaking. I want to submerge myself in a process. I hope that I can offer that to viewers. So with the cyanotypes that I'm making, they're six foot squares, which is really large to be working on paper. And I feel like I'm pushing the paper to its maximum. It's nice because it's nice for me. I'm pushing the paper to its maximum. The reason why I decided to work with cyanotypes is because it literally is the language of blueprint. Mm-hmm. It is the the way in which your country gets carved up. It's mm-hmm. the way in which divisions get implemented and supported when there are none. Um through the sort of colonial machine and through other systems of oppression. So I wanted that to be a tool to be reinscribed with different meaning. The same thing, I feel like it dances with the extraction. So the color palette is all based on sort of different ways in which natural resources, different natural resources are extracted. So the cyanotype is a beautiful blue that moves and it also offers a space for me to paint into Mm. using watercolor. And so, again, materials are really important to me. And so I decided to work with um, porcelain as it was, you know, another kind of historic material and cobalt that we use in all of our imaginings of the future, the Elon Musk, the space, and it's all extracted from Congo. I decided to look at these Congolese masks and start thinking about that in relationship to these porcelain figures. Speaking of the traditional mask from the Congo, that was linked to the idea of multiplicity of seeing. Could you talk about this idea of many-eyed gaze? Yeah, I think it's called a Congo with a K-K-O-N-G-O. 
and it comes from the Congo, C-O-N-G-O. This idea of a multi-perspective, a multi-sided gaze is really interesting to me in that you think of the world singularly, often just because the way our eyes work. And me being a like animal geek that I am, I think about spiders sometimes. Like mm-hmm. what happens if you did have multiple visual inputs, they would always force you to like have some level of visual empathy because it's A plus B that equals this third space. But I think it's also about being seen. Like we switch ourselves, our brains, if we see multiple tracks, then we expect to be seen in multiple tracks. That was something that excited me. And so I started working on these figures. Yeah, after that. So this idea of there being more than one perspective is also part of the multi-branched maze that you painted on the walls. There's a suggestion that there are different routes to one destination. Could you expand on what that means for you as an artist making work in divisive times and territories? There's never a way and there's always a way. (laughs) It's like just how I was raised, you know. You can find yourself in a, say, destination through the window or the door or the roof. And even when you think there's no way, there's always a way. And so I grew up making mazes. Just as a little kid, I I had a maze book. And then I was like, I can make these. And I had a book that I would also make mazes in. When I was thinking about what to do here to activate the installation portion of the presentation, So when I was trying to think of how to treat the walls in regards to the rest of the installation, I thought it needed to be something you could sink into, that you could lose yourself in, and that there's never a way. There's always a way that kind of informed, like, it's got to be a maze. And a maze versus a labyrinth where there's only one way to reach your intended goal. So the way the installation works, there's a presentation of Uh, works on paper outside. But then when you come inside the architecture, there's an entire landscape. That landscape also gives way to a pictorial landscape. So you move between the maze, which is already an aerial view, and this landscape that's surreal, just surreal, like it should not be there. Yeah, when we were in the space the other day, you mentioned how it took you back to your childhood drawings of the mazes. And that was really uh, interesting to hear about that. So Kambui, what would you like audiences to take away with them after experiencing your installation? I want them to be careful not to dye their feet with blue sand, but I want them to hang out. I want it to be a place often interested in sight because I think that in any site you return to it and you use it however you need to in that moment and then you come back again. And so it becomes functional. It becomes a spot where people are like, oh, they come, let me come back with my grandma. Let me, you know, so that's, I mean, in a perfect world, I would love people to just kick it there, just sit on the rocks, especially, yeah, like this is my spot. Well, thank you for joining us on the Sharjah Biennial podcast, Kambui. And thank you to our listeners who tuned in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our conversation series, Kambui Olujimi's work, our own view at the Flying Saucer. We hope to see you there. Take care. For more of these chats with artists from around the world, subscribe to Sharjah Art Foundation's channel wherever you get your podcasts. For updates about the ongoing Sharjah Biennial, follow us on Instagram at Sharjah Art.